So I invite you to turn or scroll to the book of Matthew for the last time. We started the Sermon on the Mount back in October, took a break during Advent season to highlight the word behold, but we are landing the plane this morning. And I just want to say what I've said many times before. The Sermon on the Mount is such a momentous, important teaching for us to fully understand and grasp. It literally is the foundation of the entire New Testament. If we miss the Sermon on the Mount, if we miss the teaching, the truths of the Sermon on the Mount, we will likely misunderstand aspects of the entire New Testament. And we obviously don't want to do that. So we've taken time to analyze virtually every verse or phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. But now as we close, I want to bring us back because, as they say, you don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. I want you just to see the big picture, the movement of this sermon. Most of what you'll hear from me this morning, you have heard before. And that's okay. Because repetition is the mother of all learning. I used to be a school teacher. So these things are very, very important. So there are a handful of aspects that we're going to highlight and literally just walk through this. Uh, you can, I'll highlight some verses that you might just want to look at on your phone or in your Bible. But I want to begin with the setting. Matthew chapter 5, obviously, is the fifth chapter in the New Testament. So this is early on. This is the beginning. So what I want you to see is how this inaugural recorded teaching of Jesus, what surrounds it or what is there around it as we begin. John the baptizer leapt in his mother's womb when Mary came upon the news of his cousin. John the baptizer was the fulfillment of Isaiah's statement, his prophecy, seven, eight hundred years prior to the date. Make clear the paths of the Lord. There would be a very special and unique forerunner to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unique is an understatement. The man wore camel hair, ate locusts, and wild honey. He got your attention. And he literally just showed up out of the wilderness, maybe with a few snacks in his hand. John's message was a baptism of repentance. That was his message. That was the heart of what John the Baptist had to say, was repent. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so if you can visualize Jews getting into the water to be baptized by John, 
a baptism of repentance. And now, and they were confessing, obviously, their sins. So then the sparks begin to fly. Because you kind of expect John to engage the rank and file to say, repent, because the kingdom, it's on hand. It's here. He's here. But then something takes a dramatic twist. The Pharisees show up. Now, the Pharisees were a part of the, what I would call the religious establishment of the day. They were established along with their siblings, if you will, in ministry, hundreds of years prior, actually dating back to the exile. They had a noble cause. They wanted to bring people back to God's word. They wanted to safeguard God's truth. Because the people of Israel were in exile, the Assyrian exile, because they had forgotten and ignored and disregarded God's word. But what happened is, over the years and over the centuries... They began to make their religion an external one. That is, it was all about show. It was all about doing things to impress other people, even if your heart was far from God. And so, when John the baptizer was in the water, he looks up and he sees the religious leaders showing up. And and he knew why they were there. Right? They were here to inspect him. They were here to see what all this commotion was. They were here to see who this person was that was daring to represent God outside of their auspices and their oversight. John was not a weak character. He didn't allow them the first word. He called them out. Who warned you, he said, of the wrath to come. He said, don't you dare... Tell me that you have Abraham as your father. Don't lean on your lineage to say you are okay with God because you have a straight lineage to Abraham. He said the axe is at the root of the tree. And he gave them the same message that he gave the rank and file. And he told them to come down and get wet because they needed to repent. They needed to be made right with God because they, despite their religiosity and their flowing robes and all of these things, they were not representing God. They were not right with God. In fact, they would burden the people with all kinds of rules and regulations to keep. G- uh, John the Baptist confronted the legalistic religious system and he prepared the way of the Lord. What is the topic of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's the kingdom. John, I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. 
And he opened his mouth, Jesus, and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The subject of this sermon is the kingdom. God's rule and reign. God is at work. But I want you to notice what Jesus says right off the bat from the very beginning. Blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. That's humility. That is a recognition of your own sin. That is not a hardness of heart. That is not a judgmental spirit towards other people because you are so well aware of your own sin. It is a bankruptcy in which you recognize and you acknowledge that contrary to your foolish religious leaders of the day, you cannot rectify your problem. Your sin is real, it runs deep, and it cannot be solved by you. The latter bookend, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like their scribes, not like the Pharisees, not like the Sadducees. He wasn't like them. What he said rang true. It was convicting, but it gave hope. Only Jesus can do that. I appreciated Dale highlighting that. In the beginning, as we move through this sermon, I want you to see Jesus, his person, and his mission. Please look in your own Bible, chapter 5, verse 17. We have referenced this statement more times than I can remember, but I'm going to do it again. Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. Jesus immediately passes the sniff test initially. He's surely addressing the Pharisees, who I'm sure were there. And he said, look, I'm not going to... Cast aside the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, I am going to use them and honor them, which is what they wanted to hear. But Jesus then in the same breath undermined them in a way that I can't even describe how devastating it was. He says, I'll not only teach them, I'll not only uphold them, But friends, I will fulfill them. I am the subject of Moses and the prophets. I am the one that we have waited for all these years. They indeed were speaking of me. Now remember, there's 
a concept that we have to make sure we understand. It's the obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ was this. I will keep the law. I was born under the law. I will not transgress the law in any way, shape, or form. And when necessary, I will fulfill it. I will keep it to a T without any mistake. I will never veer to the left or to the right. There is no human being on earth that could ever make such a statement. That was his active obedience. His passive obedience is what he allowed to come his way. His obedience to the prophets who prophesied of the Messiah as one who would suffer, as one through whom justification would come and forgiveness and hope. That obedience was predicated by drops, sweat drops of blood in the garden. As he had come to that hour to be betrayed, to be taken, and to suffer. But saints, we have to see how these two things come together. Jesus could only obey passively because he had already obeyed actively. That is why at the very beginning of the Gospels, what do you see? You see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He was being tested so that he could demonstrate from the beginning that he was not only born without sin, but he would live without sin. Why does this matter? The next little sermon point, we'll call it sinners and the law. Look again at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus will walk his listeners from the intimidating to the impossible. And that is the ministry of the gospel. It is the front end of the gospel. It is what evokes the poverty of spirit. Look at verse uh, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now imagine... These followers who are listening to Jesus. The religious leaders had such prominence in their mind. Such respect. Frankly, intimidation. They were seen as better than anyone else. Oh, because they trumpeted. They made sure that everybody knew how righteous they were. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you a wager. If you have the misguided notion that you will merit, that you will earn 
your salvation, that you will enter the kingdom, that you will be forgiven based upon your performance, based upon your righteousness, based upon your church attendance, your church offering, your Sunday school attendance, all of those things. He said, I just want to let you know, you got to do better than the best over there or else you're not getting in. Now that's intimidating. But mathematically and humanly speaking, it's possible. So what Jesus does is extraordinary. Jesus goes back to his original statement which said, in which he says, I will uphold the law and the prophets. And the living word takes a stroll through the written word. He says, guys... We've got the Pharisees right here. Let's talk about the law. Let's do this. And he does so with a, with a paradigm. In the end of chapter 5, you see a number of sections that start like this. You've heard it said before. But I tell you. You've heard your religious leaders say. Yeah, but I'm going to step in and I'm going to tell you the truth. So at one and the same time, he was undercutting the religious leaders. But he was also driving to a point, which is, if you actually think that the law is in place to keep it so you can get in, you've lost your mind. You can't. So he takes him through a number of steps. The first one being this. He said, you've heard it said. Your your religious leaders say, don't kill people. Like literally, don't kill people. Now that is in the law. But you see, the Pharisees would go to bed at night and say, well, you know, like most of us, haven't killed anyone today. Look at me, aren't I great? Jesus says, are you kidding me? Have you read the law? Do you know the heart of God? Let me ask you a few more questions. I know what you've heard, but I tell you. Do you hate anyone? Have you wished ill on anyone? Have you spoken disparagingly to other people? Have you mistreated Those who carry the image of God. You see, the law is a lot more than just a fancy little checklist in which you cherry pick the ones that you like and that are within easy reach. And then you keep it and you say, hey, look at me. I'm so good. He says, no. If you enter into the depth of the law and if you engage the very heart of God, you are going to find over and over and over and over again that you fall short. That's intimidating. But Jesus will now take this door that is so near and dear to so many people. Call it what you want. Karma, do good to your neighbors, keep the law, whatever it is. And he will now bolt 
That door shut. Verse 48. He says, remember when I said you got to be as good as the religious leaders? He said, I'm going to just kind of finish my thought on that. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says, if you're all about earning it, walking up and saying, hey, I'm here. I deserve to come in. He said, the bar is not being better than the worst person that comes to your mind like Adolf Hitler. The bar is God himself. And if you truly know the law, if you truly know the prophets, you will know that God is is immeasurably holy and righteous and morally perfect. We can't even stand in his presence. This is the front end of the gospel. It humbles us. It drives us to our knees because we realize if we're honest for just a moment that we can't do this. That's poverty of spirit. But you see, Jesus, remember, gospel means good news. So once he brings us to that place where we can look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves and speak the truth. He offers the best news that anyone could ever hear. More on that later. Chapter 6. We call this the heart of the matter. Jesus will continue to expound the law and the prophets. And he will show time and time again that to be a righteous person, you don't parade yourself throughout the streets and draw attention to yourself and pat yourself on the back and say, look at me. I'm giving money to the poor right now. Everybody watch me so that I can give this money to this poor beggar right here. Isn't he lucky that I'm around today? You laugh. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They literally had a trumpeter come and sound the trumpet so that people could take note of their righteous deeds. Or when they fasted, far be it to them that this would be a matter of personal worship between them and God. No, no. They would literally disfigure their face. They would take those essential oils and they would use them in the wrong way. And they would make their face look just awful. So that they could walk around literally in the streets. I'm fasting today. Don't you wish you were like me? Jesus time and time again would say, guys, that's not what God values. It's about the heart. It's about you. And it's about the Lord. And when God gets a hold of your heart. This need for self-promotion, it diminishes. Because you really understand who God is. And who you are. So we see this movement. Jesus is like none other. He will fulfill the law. He will obey 
the law and the prophets. He will submit himself to the word of God, to God himself. He will suffer and he will die for sinners. We have a beautiful picture of what it means to follow the heart of God. To feel God's love for people. To treat people well. Even people, especially people who aren't like you, who think differently, maybe look different from you, speak different from you. Love them. The Imago Dei, the image of God. How we treat those around us matters. But saints, there's a tremendous misapplication of the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. And it goes like this. We're going to focus on all of those wonderful teachings that Jesus has about loving your neighbor, which is in chapter 7. It's called the Golden Rule. We're going to focus on all of the passages in which Jesus tells his followers to love people. And quite literally, we'll ignore the rest. But you see, the Sermon on the Mount is so important for us because though it has these wonderful truths and these teachings of how God's people ought to live, there is a context in which that sermon falls. Remember, it began with a guy coming out of the wilderness in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey, saying, repent. He talked about judgment. He talked about getting your own heart right with God. And that's for everyone, even the religious leaders. And now, Jesus himself. You ask yourself this question. You look at Matthew chapter 7, especially the second half. And you ask yourself this question. Do you find these teachings of Jesus promoted in society and culture today? The answer is no. So watch what Jesus does. We said that Matthew 7, the highlight, is about judgment. While it contains, I think it's verse 12, the golden rule, what Jesus is angling towards is far more than this brief life. He's angling towards eternity. He is telling us That there will be judgment. And guess what? As the guy who fulfills the entire Old Testament, he himself will be the judge. Do you see all the reasons why the Pharisees hated Jesus? At every turn, he was blaspheming everything that they held near and dear. Jesus, when he speaks of judgment... He names himself as the judge. In fact, take your Bibles. This is not on the screen. And turn to Acts chapter 17. We've looked at this before, but it came to mind as I was driving in this morning. It's worth looking at again. I want you to see how the apostles take this and they apply it in their preaching. Acts chapter 17. The reason why I'm picking this is, number one, this is the apostle Paul. This isn't Jesus. Number two, the gospel is now spreading around the world. So he's speaking to 
to Gentiles, if you will, to pagans, and they loved their philosophy. They would sit around in Athens and they would talk about different philosophies and religious teachings and what was the most, you know, the trendy thing of the day. But notice how Paul closes his little message. Verse 30, Acts 17. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's the apostolic preaching of the gospel. It is at one and the same time an invitation. It's also a command. This is my son. Remember his baptism? Listen to him. But notice what he says. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Christ suffered for sinners, was buried, rose again, defeated death, ascended into heaven, is given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the one who is speaking to them actually will be their judge. The weight of the Sermon on the Mount, the theology that is dropped on these people who never heard anything like this before. No wonder why they said, this guy's not like the scribes. He's telling us to repent. He's telling us the truth. And then he's telling us on that day, he'll be the one who is the judge. But it's not a passing comment. The movement in Matthew chapter 7. I mean, it really begins in verse 15, the second half of the chapter. Jesus makes the astounding statement, which cuts. Have you ever actually done this, like heated a knife and then you slice it through butter? It's lots of fun, but it just goes right through it. So you have today, and it's not just today, it's the spirit of virtually every age. Do your best. What works for you works. What works for you works for me and it works for God. Just keep doing what you're doing. You be you and that's fine. The message of the gospel is so counter to that. It's actually the opposite. We need a savior. And so while the world screams today, take it easy. Be comfortable. Make yourself at home. God doesn't care about your sin. I know Jesus came in the incarnation and he entered into time and space and he, he actually became sin who knew no sin. But it's, it's just a side note. Carry on in your sin. I'm not going to sound it. Why would I ever sound the alarm about your sin? There's no consequence to it. Just be you. We'll all get along. 
That's not the gospel. And saints, that is not Jesus. Jesus said, he said, there are two paths in life. One is wide and one is narrow. One is wide. There's lots of room on it. There's a party every step of the way. It is, it makes sense to us. We just naturally, we want to go this way. But he says, I want to tell you something. That path, which is the easiest and the most natural and the most appealing, the one that will gain the consensus of society, it leads to destruction. Now, there's another path. It's not so obvious. And it's not popular. And it's a narrow path. That narrow path, just as the wide path leads to a wide gate, the narrow path leads to a narrow gate. Jesus says, that path that leads to that gate that is narrow, there's life. And few there be that find it. Which is why Jesus and every single apostle reminds us, you are going to face opposition and persecution every step of the way if you follow me. But then he develops this idea just a little bit more. He says this, this wide path. I mean, you got the food trucks out. You got the party going. I mean, it is the place to be. He says this wide path is littered with false prophets giving you false assurance deceiving but they sound so enticing remember Genesis yea hath God said did God really say that remember in the garden he didn't parade sports cars or money or sex, any of those things. What caused the fall was to question the word of God. That was it. Did God really say? Have you ever encountered that today when you look at cultural philosophies? God didn't really say that. But then Jesus, as if that imagery is not impactful enough he takes it just a little bit farther he says I want you to know that there will be people on that day when they stand before me they will use what in their culture was a term of endearment and familiarity Lord, Lord. They don't just say Lord. They say, Lord, Lord, it's me. I'm here. Do you remember all those amazing things that I did in your name? What has to be the most arresting passage or one of them in all of Scripture, on that day, 
is when loving Jesus looks at them and responds and says, I never knew you. He doesn't merely say, you never knew me. I didn't know you. Depart from me. That raises the bar of the importance of what Jesus is speaking to. Jesus spoke with authority. And so flowing from that, Jesus gives a final little illustration. He says, listen, you can build your life in one of two ways. You can be like the guy who built his house hastily and he did so on the sand very beautiful and picturesque, you know, beach sunset. Who doesn't like a beach sunset, right? So it's all grain. But then something entirely predictable happened. The storms came, the storms of life. And the, sto- the, lo- the house didn't stand. Friends, I don't need to tell you that life is difficult. The question is, upon what are you building your life? The message that Jesus is giving is this. If you are building your life on Christ, your life will stand. If you're not, it won't. Are we building it on the rock or on shifting sand? In the parallel passage, Luke chapter 6, I just love this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Are you kidding me? Saints, I commend to you the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Take it to heart. Believe it. Let it sink in. Because Jesus is teaching us that forgiveness, a relationship with God, is a matter of the heart. It's not just things that you believe intellectually. But through the poverty of spirit, you recognize you have a need. And you flee and you trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. Yesterday, a number of us were gathered uh, with a number of people that we don't even know to remember Todd Heisman, his life, his ministry, to support his family. Many of you don't know Todd. The Heismans were a part of our church for quite a while. He moved on about 12 years ago. But anyone who knows, who knew Todd, we know that he was just so passionate. He loved the Lord. He loved people. And he would do anything for anyone with great energy and enthusiasm and passion. We grieve with Susan and the kids. But we know that all of Todd's problems that he faced in the 52 years of his life, they're over. He's with the Lord. He's with the Lord. His legacy will live on in so many people. My question to you simply is this Do you know Christ? Are you relying on your own good works, your efforts, your righteousness? I beg of you, that is not the place to be. 
Are you determining what is right or wrong or what's good or bad based on your own wisdom, your own perspective? Or are you trusting in the word of God, the truth of God? Friend, build your life on Christ. He will not let you down. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For the convicting words of Christ. Thank you for the convicting words of the apostles. Even when he had gone back to heaven, Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the quick when Peter preached. Your truth, when we're honest with it, it doesn't allow us to minimize or rationalize or, or sidestep. But it convicts us. It humbles us. Oh, but it brings such good news. Jesus Christ, who sustains all things by the word of his power, he is a friend of sinners. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the grace upon which we stand. Thank you for the joy that comes as we walk with you, even in our trials. Oh, Lord, help us to clear the distractions as we experience hurt and heartache and challenges in life. You say to cast all your cares on us because you, on you because you care for us. Renew our vision of who you are, our perspective. Lord, this has been a very, very challenging past year or so on so many levels. Thank you for your unconditional and great love for us. Thank you for the gospel, which is free. Thank you that Christ paid it all. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.